0: on so yeah we kind of left off at verse uh, 6 and 7 and I was going to pick it up in in verse 8 but just as I was studying and preparing I just felt like man this the true springboard to launch in to where this text is is verse 4 for me verse 4 and it says this rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice and so we're going to pick it up at verse 4 and just make our way through the rest of the chapter So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now here's the truth. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances, but you can always rejoice in the Lord. And this has been one of the calls of the book of Philippians, this little book. And so this this call, this truth, is not something that's optional for us. This is an imperative. This is a command from the apostle. This is a command of the Lord and and obviously the reaction of our human nature is like okay rejoice I get it but how do I do that all the time I mean I can't rejoice in everything can I how do I do that and the key as we saw is this is verse 5 which says this let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. See, the secret to uh, joy is realized, the secret to rejoicing is realized in companionship and in relationship and in friendship and in the nearness of Jesus. Uh, The example that just comes to mind for me is that of the disciples in the boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is there with them. He's sleeping in the stern of the boat and they come face to face with a storm and the wind is blowing in their face. The waves are breaking over the bow of that boat. And, and at face value, it appears that they're going down, that the ship is going to sink, that they're going to be lost in the midst of that storm. And then you know the story. They, they wake Jesus up. He stands up. He rebukes the winds and the waves. And immediately everything is still and calm. And amazingly, that ship, the, the Gospels tells us, Instantly, they were at the other shore. They arrived at their destination. And Jesus said to them, he, he rebuked them for their lack of faith. See, what they, rea- what they failed to realize that was in the present, presence of the storm, Jesus was right there present with us. And so one of the thoughts where we left off here was this, is that when life brings a storm, look for Jesus. Look, look for him. He's right there with you. He's with you. We were reminded of that even from Psalm 34 last week. And any of you have been, in a, been through a storm in life, life has tossed its waves and the wind has battered you, and, and maybe in hindsight you look back once you've arrived at the destination of the other shore and you recognize that Jesus was there with you all along even when you thought he had abandoned you. And the truth is this, and we're going to see this in Paul, is that we can bear more than than we think. You can endure anything. You can believe God in the face of any storm when the overshadowing presence of Jesus is realized and the fact that he is there with you. And so it's because of the presence of Jesus that Paul says what he says next. And we went through this, but I want to go through this again this morning. And so it's verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. What is anxiety? It's that feeling of worry, nervousness, unease about something, unease about an uh, an unknown outcome, and it actually means this in its biblical definition, to be pulled in two directions. That's what anxiety is, to have that anxious heart and mind. Your mind or your heart being pulled in separate directions. Hope pulls you one direction, and, and worry pulls you in another, and in the process, what does it feel like? You feel like I'm being pulled apart. It's stretched between two horses, so to speak. And the old English root of worry means this. It means to strangle. Actually to strangle. And that's what worry feels like, doesn't it? Anxiety can feel like that. It can feel like you're, you're being choked, like you're being strangled. And it can manifest like physically in your, in your body and in your life when you're overcome with anxiousness or worry. And so Paul's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice and anxiety worry will rob you of your ability to rejoice in the lord now now we we know this but it's important that we say it in the context of the scripture today that from a spiritual point of view as followers of jesus anxiety worry is really wrong thinking And so what we're going to see is that Paul is going to begin to direct us towards right thinking. But but spiritually speaking, anxiety is wrong thinking in your mind, and it can be wrong feelings in your heart. Wrong feelings about circumstances, about people, about situations, about the Lord. And anxiety and worry is a a thief of joy. I told you this story, and I I thought, oh, I'll cut that out. No, but it's kind of funny, because, you know, I say this to my wife. I, I say... You know, she shares something with me that she's worried about, and I say, well, don't worry about it. Like, that's the solution. Like, that's the magic pill. Oh, don't worry about it. That'll fix it. And, and you know, uh, husbands, that's not good advice. <laughs> you know, I'll just tell you what, don't worry about it. You know, if she, if it was that simple, she wouldn't be worrying about it. And, you know, if only victory was just, yeah, that easy as as... Telling the person who's worrying or having, experiencing anxiety, you know, just don't worry about it. That's not the magic pill. Worry, worry and anxiety is like the inside job of a bank robbery. And so what's the solution? And so wh- what we looked at before was this, was right praying. We're going to talk about right thinking and right living this morning too. But first let's talk about right praying. So Paul, Paul says this, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, the solution for anxiety and for worry, Paul tells us, is prayer. And he uses three words to describe the right kind of praying. He says prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer is that general word that, that means making your request known to God, and, and it encompasses the idea of adoration, of devotion, of worship. And so what he's saying is this, is that when you find yourself overcome with anxiety, when worry begins to creep in and begins to rob you of your ability to rejoice in the Lord, what you want to do is train yourself to begin to pray, to begin to worship and express your adoration and your devotion to the Lord, to get alone with him. You know, for me, I like to put on the worship music. Just get that happening in the background so that I can begin to put my mind where it should be. And adoration and and worship is needed because what that does is it puts things in their proper place and and their perspective. You know, worry tends to push God off the throne and it makes this issue that's in front of us bigger than King Jesus. And worship and adoration puts God back on his throne. We say, man, You're exalted above these things, Jesus. I set my heart and my mind upon you. I worship you for who you are. That's God in his proper place. To say to him, God, there's no one like you. There's nothing like you. There's nothing bigger than you. There's nothing greater than you. You know, in heaven above or earth below, Lord, you're the king, you're in control. I'm your child. And I trust you. You're steadfast in your love. And God, ah, this thing's deceiving me. It's telling me that it's bigger than you, but you're bigger than it. And I just put my hope upon upon you. See, we have to realize the greatness and the majesty of God. That He's big enough for all of our problems, all of our circumstances, all of our situations. And and, and sometimes, when we're filled with anxiety, we we, we rush into the presence of the Lord and we just begin to dump on him. And just express to him the things that are weighing so heavy upon us. But what Paul's telling us is that the first step is this. Come in and worship. Come in and express your adoration of the Lord. And then Paul says the next thing is that we pray for supplication. We pray for God to supply. We, we share with him our needs and our problems and we ask him to meet those needs. You know Jesus said this he said ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And so when we come to ask the Lord to meet us in our need man we, we, we be earnest about it. We ask, we seek, we knock. And then Paul says, then next, it's thanksgiving. This prayer of adoration, the prayer of asking for God's supply, and then the prayer of thanksgiving. You remember, I, I don't know, maybe you were here, but this, this really struck me as I was going through this because I thought, man, I don't know, do I say thank you enough to God? Do I, do I give him thanks enough enough? You know, we teach children from a young age to say thank you. And it's just proper, right? It's like right. It's proper etiquette to say thank you when someone provides something for you. It's the right thing to do. Because nobody likes a spoiled child who takes for granted the generosity of their parents and doesn't say thank you. There's something wrong about ungrateful children And we're not to be ungrateful children. We're to to express our thanksgiving to God, even in the midst of our anxiety and worry. And so just the question is this, are you thankful? And and when's the last time you told God that you were thankful? Does he know, or are you just the spoiled child? Do you thank him? And so Paul gives us this model for prayer, the right kind of prayer when we're dealing with anxiety. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. And verse 7 tells us the amazing result of this process. He says this, And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the picture of guarding the heart is like that of a garrison of soldiers. Stationed at a fortress to protect it. The peace of God will be like soldiers guarding your heart and your mind and, and peace will take up residence from the Lord. And here's Paul, you know I mean? This is one of the prison epistles. He's, he's in Rome, ch- chained to Roman soldiers. As he writes this very thing, night and day he is chained to soldiers. And so it's a great picture that he's giving us. He's saying, God will guard you just like I'm under this guard right here. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind from worry. The amazing thing is is that as I read that, and as you read that, you you see that it's no promise that the the situation, the circumstance, whatever it is, is necessarily going to change. Whatever was at the root of the anxiety or the worry, it's not necessarily the promise that it's, going to change. It's not the the promise of the absence of trials, but it does mean this, that there'll be quiet, a quiet confidence and security within your heart regardless of circumstance. Regardless of the people or whatever is at the root of these things that are getting at you. And so Paul tells us there in verse 5 that the Lord is at hand, the kingdom is at hand, it's near you. Jesus said it's it's near you, and it will be in you, and the thrust of this text is calling us to live in the presence of Jesus. And so when your heart and your mind are on, on the run, man, you, you go to Jesus. And as it says in verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I love this because it, 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 what Paul says about peace is astounding to me. It surpasses understanding the peace that God gives. You can't explain it. If you know Jesus, you've experienced that. When your heart, there's just such rest. When there's, some, when there's just rest and peace in your mind. Jesus said, the peace I give, it's not as the of the peace It's not the peace that the world gives. It's different. And so be anxious for nothing. Nothing in the entirety of life should give us anxiety because there's nothing uh, which is not within the realm of God's care for you. Nothing so small, nothing so big that your heavenly father, that your savior does not take notice and cannot supply for your need. And so when the least bit of anxiety begins to rise, you know, go to your knees. Pray. Get alone with the Lord. Get on your face. Go to your prayer closet. Go for your prayer walk. Begin to just get alone with God. And so Paul says this peace, it'll happen in your heart, but he tells us it will also happen for your mind. You know, I love the promises of Isaiah 26, 3, which says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And one of the key to to joy in the heart, that peace of heart, is also to have peace in your mind. So how are we to think? That's why Paul's gonna go to this conversation about right thinking. Because your thoughts are powerful. The mind never stops. Does your mind stop? My mind never stops. It just never stops. And when you're... You know, when your mind stops, we have a term that we use for that, right? So you're, you're what? You're brain dead. <laughs> if your brain stop, like if your mind stops, you're brain dead. And we use that. Like we use that as a fun, ter- you know, we, we talk about our teenage children maybe sometimes. We say, Are you brain dead? Did you stop thinking? <laughs> what led to this? When your mind stops, you're brain dead. You know, some religious traditions in their focus to quiet the mind, they try all sorts of different things, right? Meditation, silent retreats, mantras, whatever it is. But what the word of God instructs us is this. The word of God says this in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, that we are to take captive every thought and we are to bring our thoughts into obedience to who? Jesus. Jesus. We bring our thoughts into the obedience of Jesus. And so what does that look like? What is right thinking, biblical thinking, Christ-centered thinking? Look at what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's a great list, isn't it? A, I, I like it too because it's, like, it's just simple. It's like that, that's on my level right there. Those aren't big words. That's like simple stuff that's pretty self-explanatory. Whatever's true. Dr. Uh, Walter Calvert reported in a, in a survey on worry uh, that their survey indicated this, that 8% of the things people worried about were actually legitimate issues of concern. And that the other 92% of things that people have anxiety and they worry about were either imaginary, they never happened, or they involved uh, things and matters over which peop- you had no control anyways. is that interesting? 8%. Eight percent of the stuff that you probably worry about is actually legitimate, and the rest is just, man, your mind's getting away on you. Bring it into obedience to Christ. You know, Satan's a liar. Your enemy is a liar. He wants to infiltrate and derail your thinking with his lies, with his deception. What is truth? Well it says, think on things that are truth. Remember, Pilate said to Jesus, "What, what is truth?" And, and Jesus answered him. He said, what? I am the way, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth, Jesus said. Whatever is true. Jesus is true. Set your mind on Jesus. You know, I would say think, think on the word of God. Meditate on these things. Consider the promises of God. Why? Because I can say unashamedly, unabashedly, we have the truth, the word of God. We have it. God's given us his word. And the word of God is true. And you know what? You can put the word of God and the promises of God to the test, and they will prove true in your life time after time after time. The word of God is true. Paul says, whatever is honorable. Think on things that are honorable. That means things that are worthy of respect. You know, I might ask, what are the things that are worthy of the respect of the Lord? They're the things that bring him honor. Think on these things. He he says, whatever's just. That means things that are moral. Things that are fair. You know, I love that the word of God tells us God is just. That 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Think on things that are just, Paul says. Or whatever is pure and lovely and commendable. Pure means morally pure things, lovely means things that are beautiful and attractive. What are the things that are beautiful and attractive to the Lord? Set your mind on those things or things that are commendable. That means the things that are actually worth talking about. The things that are are appealing, noble thoughts. Think on things that are commendable. Whatever is excellent or worthy of praise, that means if it has virtue to it, if it's worthy of your praise, that means if you can give your applause for that thought, think on those things. Thoughts that can be applauded. You know that old saying sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And what Paul is telling us here as he talks about the mind is that your mind is a battleground. You know that my mind is a battleground, it never stops. And the world and the flesh and the devil are fighting to influence our minds and fighting to influence our thinking. And I love what Psalm 27 says. It says this, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies. God wants to lift your thinking up above your enemies. Worry's an enemy. Worry's a sin, I would say. Psalm 27 verse 6 says, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. That's rejoicing in the Lord always. My head will be lifted up over my enemies. I'll offer my praises to God. I'll set my mind on him. And so, you know, when you consider your thinking, it's good to ask the question, you know, just what are you filling your mind with? The old saying, garbage in garbage out, whatever. You know, what are you filling your mind with? You spend all your time just surfing online? I don't know. Watching TV? What, what, are your, what, what are you filling your mind with? Fill it with the kind of stuff that leads you to right thinking, like Paul tells us here. Because as a man thinks, so he is. So write so prayer, right thinking, and and naturally, then Paul addresses right living. This is gonna affect your sense of peace in your heart and in in your mind, the way that you live. So you gotta live right. Look at verse nine. Whatever you've learned and received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Like, wow, Paul, that's pretty bold, man. They say, follow me. But he's telling you, he's saying, this is the practice of my life. This is the things... That that I do. And he didn't just call the church to say just, you know, do as I say. Do as I say. No, he said do as I do. You can follow my example. And and the truth that he was driving home is this. That that you cannot separate the outward actions of your life from the the inward thinking of your life. As a man thinks, so he is. And, And facts... In the head, boy, they're going to they're gonna work themselves out in your life. Thoughts, and they're going to work themselves out into the practice of your life. And so Paul says, pay attention to what you're thinking about. Let these truths of who God is be in your head. Think on these things. Let this prayer be, this prayer and this request for thanksgiving and supplication, let that be the, 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 the way that you tankle, tackle anxiety And so we're not to be just simply hearers of the word, but Paul's calling us be doers of the word. Be doers of the word. Not only hearers. As James said, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. That's crazy. You know, I hope you looked in the mirror before you came to church this morning. You did, right? Maybe you shaved and, put your hair in its place and you, you put things together. And it's crazy to say, you know, to look in the mirror and then to forget what you look like because no one does that. And what Paul's saying here and what James is actually saying is, and, and James when he says this, is that it's crazy to hear the word and to not do it. That does not make sense. And so right praying, right thinking, right living that's what Paul's calling this church to. If they're going to have hearts of rejoicing in the Lord, these things lead to rejoicing, and they, they lead to peace of mind and peace of heart. Now check out verse 10. It begins to change, change a little bit as he talks about this. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, re- you have revived your concern for me You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. What we're going to see as we read here is that Paul was off doing his work, his church planning work, his evangelistic work. And the Philippians had a heart to bless Paul. And so they took up an offering. They sent it with this man, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus had shown up. He'd found Paul, finally caught eye. Could you imagine trying to find Paul? I just think, wow. I I wonder how long Epaphroditus. went to Corinth and... Macedonia, finally he gets to Rome. Oh, here you are, Paul. This guy was just on the move for the kingdom of God. And he, he, he catches up with him, and he has this offering from the, the church in Philippi. And so this is what Paul is referencing. So verse 10 again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. And so I think that this is the application here. Paul begins to give us application of right praying, uh, right thinking, and right living. See, those things are to form for us the lens through which we view the world. The lens through which we interpret things around us. This, th- this right praying, right living, uh, sorry, right thinking, right living, they, f- they help us form a biblical worldview. You know, never was there a promise from the Lord that We have a life free of problems or even the suggestion that everything's just going to turn out as as we hope or things are going to turn out how we might dream. But right right praying, right thinking, and right living should lead us to, to recognize that we are not victims of circumstance. As followers of Jesus, we're never victims of circumstance, but really we should be this. We should be victors over whatever the circumstance. You know, it's been said this, that life is, life with Jesus is not a series of accidents. It's a series of appointments. We we actually call it the providence of God. You know, that's what it's, that's how you would define it. We don't talk about providence that much in church. But we would call this the providence of God, to say that God's in control. That God has the world in his hands. That if I I'm serving Him. He has my life in His hands. If I, you know, I'm, I'm seeking to follow Him and that right praying and right thinking and right living, God's in control of whatever happens. And I can trust Him in that. And we call that the providence of God. The providence of God is, to talk about the providence of God is to talk about the protective care of God in your life. As followers of Jesus, we, we put our trust and our hope in that. We believe in the divine care of our Savior. And for us, that's a source of comfort. It's like, okay, I don't understand what's going on here, but I trust God. So this isn't an accident. It's an appointment. How do I walk through this? Does that make sense? One of the great illustrations of God's providence in the Bible is found in the story of Joseph. Don't you love the story of Joseph? I love the story of Joseph. Joseph's story is amazing. He's betrayed by his brothers. They, they set it up to look like, you know, he died, attacked by a lion or something like that. They lie. They sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. All his stuff happens to him in Egypt. He's, he's doing the right things and he gets accused of something that, that wasn't true and he ends up in, in, in prison. And, uh, And God works in the midst of all of that. And what happens is this, is that Joseph is raised up. God actually leads him right out of prison and sets him in a position of prominence in the entire country of Egypt, the second most powerful seat in Egypt. And from that, God uses Joseph to like save the nation, but not only to save the nation, to save his own brothers, his family. And like God works this amazing story of redemption through Joseph. And Joseph recognized, he came to the point in his life that he recognized, all this stuff that happened to me, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it at the time, but I've come to realize something, that it wasn't accidents. That God worked in this stuff, appointments for his purposes. He used these things... They were not designed to harm me, but they were designed to shape me. And God turned it to good. And Joseph said, he praised the Lord for it. He said, man, things happen that people meant for evil and God turned it to good. Told his very brothers that. See, that's God's providence, the protective care of God. And for Joseph, the protective care of God was his comfort and it formed his worldview and it formed and shaped the way that he interpreted the events of his life. Now Paul also had this. He believed in this providence, the protective care of God. He's this itinerant evangelist, church planter and, and naturally, I mean, we know about Paul. Paul's willing to work. I mean, he's, he's a tent maker. He's willing to go and get his hands dirty as he goes about the work of the kingdom. But naturally, he's doing ministry. There's need. There's always need. There's always need amongst God's people and amongst church planting and all of these things. There's needs around ministry. But remember what Paul said. He said, rejoice in the Lord. He told his church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now look at verse 10 for, with me again. Look at what he says. I rejoiced. (laughs) You can follow my example. He says, I was practicing this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul rejoiced, he said, because this church's concern for him was revived. That's the word he uses. The word revive means to grow green again. Revival. Revived. Wouldn't it be awesome to see revival? Don't you want to see revival here? Wouldn't it be awesome to see revival in the town of Gibsons? Where it would grow green spiritually again. Where God would do that. Where he would do that work. It, it, It's just like this rain that we've had, you know. Like I'm kind of sad the heat's gone, but we needed the rain, didn't we? It's like people were rejoicing that there was rain. And I've been looking at my brown grass. I was looking for green blades already this morning. (laughs) Going, where's the life? Where is it? Because the rain is going to revive the brown grass, and it's going to be green again. It's going to be lush again. And it would be awesome to see spiritual revival in our community for God to renew us as he did in the days of old, you know. There's this saying about revival. You've heard it, that if you want revival, you should draw a circle around yourself on the ground and then just pray for everything inside that circle and ask for God to start there, to revive the things that are inside that circle. In other words, revival begins with who? Us. Me. Like the rain bringing life to the brown, dormant, dead grass. And it's only the rain that's gonna make that grass lush and green again, and in the exact same way there is only one thing that is going to revive you and I and revive this community, and it's this, the power of God. The power of God. And it is God in his power that, that revives, and that can't be manufactured, man. That's not an emotion that's stirred up. And so as Paul talks about the power, the, the, sorry, the providence of God, now he begins to talk about the power of God. Let's check it out. The power of God, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a great verse. Verse 13. I can do all things through through him who strengthens me. See, when, when Paul was talking about the revived concern of the Philippian uh, church for him, he wasn't complaining, you know? It's kind of like, I read this and I can kind of hear Paul. It's like, he doesn't really sound that thankful to me. It's like, yeah, you sent an offering. That's like awesome. But he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I appreciate it, but just so you know, I wasn't really worried about it. Like that's almost how he receives it. It's like, thank you, but so you know, I wasn't worried about it. And this is actually the point of where this text is going. He's saying, I I actually learned to be content with brown grass. I've learned that. Those people whine about water. I've like learned that. Okay, there was a time when I always had the sprinkler out. I wanted my grass green, but I've learned. I don't have to cut it if it's brown. (laughs) It's a good thing, you know. And so Paul wasn't complaining about the brown grass. No, what he learned was that his ability to rejoice in the Lord did not depend on circumstance. Brown grass. Green grass. Same thing for Paul. He'll rejoice in the Lord. Any circumstance, abundance, hunger. He says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Plenty or need, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You know, verse 11, if you look at verse 11, there's an interesting word in there. It's the word learn. It's in verse 12 too, so I'm going to just point this out. Verse, Verse 11 tells us that Paul said this was a truth that he learned in his life. Learned learned means this, it just simply means that he acquired knowledge regarding this truth. And the knowledge that he acquired was this, that his ability to do stuff for God and for the kingdom was based on the provision of God's power. Not whether there was brown grass or green grass, that didn't matter. Abundance or need, plenty or want, that didn't matter. Because God had the power to provide Paul said, I learned that. I learned it. You know, there's a saying that we use to articulate what Paul is saying here. We see this, we're God guides, God provides. And it doesn't matter whether the grass is brown and dead or dormant or whether it's lush and green because we deal in the economy of God's power. That's what Paul's telling this church. And so what we need is to have our eyes open to see that, that, that there is no greater need in your life or in my life than the, that, that's in, that God's power is insufficient to handle. He can handle it. He can take care of it. What, what are you worried about? What's got you all tied up in knots and anxious? The power of God is sufficient for the need. Look at verse 12. Paul said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. There's that word learned again. So just mark that. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We saw the word learned in verse 11. We see it here in verse 12. Again, it's a different word. In English, we translate it. It's the same word. But in the original language, it's a different word. In verse 11, To say learned means he's increased knowledge. He increased knowledge. He gained knowledge about God's ability to provide. But in verse 12, the word learned means this. It means to be initiated into the mysteries. It it means to be fully instructed. To me, that's a weird definition of saying learned to say you've been initiated into the mysteries. Isn't that interesting? And to be honest, I just think, man, this is like where my skill totally is gone and over and finished and I can't explain this. The Spirit of God has to make this real to your heart. Because this is about the power of God. See, Paul is talking about the mysteries of God as he speaks to this church and he's saying, I have been initiated into the mysteries of God. Brown, brown grass and green grass, that's nothing because I know about the power of God. He, he's saying this that there's, a, that there's a secret spring, that it's mysterious. There's a well from which you can draw. And, and, and it's hidden and yet it's not hidden. And it's this well that's available and yet so few people learn to come and to tap in to this spring and this source for their lives. Paul Paul told us elsewhere, nothing can separate me from God's love or from the throne of grace. See, he discovered, he found that when he sought the Lord that there was power Available for the need, but you have to go to the well. You have to go to the well. You know, it's like we find the Lord when we seek Him. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, the door will be open. That's what Paul's telling you. He he learned that his circumstance, it didn't matter. God could meet it with his power. And here's the truth, that unless we draw on the deep resources of God by faith, unless we draw on the deep resources of God by faith, you will fail in the midst of the pressures of this life. You gotta go to the well. And as followers of Jesus, there is power that is more than adequate, that is available to us, that even dwells within us. And we are to learn to draw on the power of Jesus to meet the need of the day. That's why Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you will bear no fruit. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And so Paul speaks so graciously to me, you know, as he's like, this little offerings come from the church. I imagine it's probably, it probably fairly insignificant, it's just my guess. Because he's speaking graciously to this church. He's thanking them for sending the gift, and yet at the same time, he's saying, just so you know, I have total confidence in the power and the promise of God, whether the grass is brown or whether it's green. And you should know this as citizens of heaven. Look at verse 14. He says this. It's gracious. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians, and and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, I I I just love the simplicity of this. So I wasn't seeking your gifts. Just so you know, God meets all of my needs always. But I'm thankful for what you send. What I want, what I desire, the fruit that I am seeking is that which will increase to your credit. See, a couple of things Paul says to this church about this financial gift that they sent to help him. Um, And and Paul wasn't arrogant, but he was, like I said, confident in God's ability to provide for, for the ministry. And so he thanks them for their generosity, and then he says a couple things about this gift. The first thing that I think he says is this. It's to your credit. He's saying this. This is an investment, just so you guys know. Their gift was an investment that would pay rich spiritual dividends. You know, the Lord is not indebted to anyone. Did you know that about the Lord? That you cannot outgive the Lord. That those I I, I like those who do not give to the kingdom of God only rip themselves off. <laughs> That's why the Lord actually gave the challenge to the prophet Malachi. Uh, he said, You test me and you see. You give to me. And you see if I don't open wide the windows of heaven. You know, it's funny, you know, you read the Old Testament, and there are times when you like, you read and you read about offerings, you know. I am recalling I didn't look it up, but there's a passage that I've just come across over the years in my quiet time, where you read about uh, Moses, and Moses recorded with great detail the gifts that each one of the tribes brought in the building of the tabernacle. Like this group, this plate, this, this, and this, and this. And then you go down the list and you start to read it and you're like, okay, they're all identical. Why would you like tell 12 times the exact same thing? Why not just say, these 12 tribes brought this gift and it was all the same? Or you go to the book of Ezra and you read in Ezra and it's like there's detailed accounting of the gifts that people brought. And it's like, You're having your quiet time. You're like. ah, (laughs) That's a tough chapter to stay awake through. Because you're like. It's numbers. And it's like. why, Why is this here? Like why not just say. The people brought gifts. And it blessed the Lord. You know. He rewarded them. See the reason is this. The Lord wants us to know. He wants his people to know. That he accounts for every single gift. That is given to him. He accounts for them all. You know, it's like somewhere in eternity, there's like a ledger. And it's all accounted for. It's all accounted. And Paul is telling the church that that whatever you give to the Lord is an investment that pays eternal dividends. Even those offerings that maybe seem meaningless to, to you, God pours out richly his blessing. When you give, it's an investment. But then the second thing Paul says is this from this text, verse 18, that it's a sacrifice. That when you give, it's like a sacrifice to God. It's like you lay it on the altar for his glory. And when we give in such a way, we can be confident that that God will take care of us. We saw that last week in in Psalm 34. And so Paul says this, you you met the need, and I just want you to know, God's going to meet your every need. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a verse we love to quote, but I think typically when that verse gets quoted, it is quoted out of context. Because the verse is a promise to those who give to the Lord. It's a church giving to another ministry. And they made an investment. They made a sacrifice. They sent someone from their own church to hunt down Paul and they gave. And, and maybe, I just, I just really think, as I was thinking on this, I bet they gave out of their poverty when I think of this group. But Paul says this, God will supply all of your needs out of his riches. You gave to him? He's got it, man. He's got it. And so he closes to this church and he says to them, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I always love how Paul closes. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What are our takeaways this morning? They're this right praying, right thinking, right living. God's bigger than the circumstance, He's bigger than the source of your worry. Form your worldview, form the way you interpret life based on those truths. As a follower of Jesus, you have landed in the providence of God, his protective care. Nothing in your life is an accident. Nothing in your life is an accident. It's an appointment. So is the grass brown or is the grass green? it doesn't really matter because God can provide your needs. So you look to him. You look to him and you just continue to faithfully serve him because my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Isn't God good? Isn't he good? Let's pray this morning. We're gonna invite the worship team to come and uh, I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. Would you stand with me?